Hey everyone, this is Noor and you're listening to the Radical Contemporary Podcast. This episode is part of our season with Inertia and Egypt's Entrepreneur Awards. Bringing you some of the most influential, pioneering and powerful minds in the country to take us through how they managed to achieve success and to strive for greatness. And then suddenly I find myself in, 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 in kind of the reflective world in Cairo. So other than the fact that I didn't even know this existed, part of, of these stories was kind of taking a very satirical look at the ostentatiousness of it and the extravagance of it. In this episode, I speak to writer, media guru and bona fide storyteller Amy Moefi, co-founder of one of Egypt's most expansive media agencies, MO4 Network. We speak about women in media, building an empire while juggling motherhood and the madness of Cairo, and the ability to expand at an exponential rate with a team of social media mavens. Because of being a third culture kid in a world before social media and having no one that I could look to who could reflect what was possible for me as a young Egyptian woman. And now to my conversation with Amy. I'm sitting with Amy Moefi. I'm really happy that this is going to be wrapping up our season because I've been really wanting to interview for a while. We're in Consoleil and West Balad, which is really your turf. I firstly wanted to ask you because I did a lot of research and within it, I found out that you are so rooted in writing as a person. And I didn't know this, even though I read your captions that are full of, uh, <laughs> full of stories. <laughs> I wanted to know, when did you start writing? Everything I do today kind of started with the writing. I remember for many years, I was very reluctant to call myself a writer. It sounded like this. Like, I didn't feel you get to call yourself a writer if you're not like J.K. Rowling, like a billionaire yeah, writer. You like, know what I mean? Or like Pulitzer Prize winning writer. <laughs> like, so I started writing as a teenager. You know, these kind of long diatribes and like really over overwrought emotional. <laughs> and like... <laughs> essays around like my my feelings um and thank god social media wasn't around then because it'd just be mortifying to have that stuff out in the world which is what happens today ironically and i feel very bad for this generation who don't yes. anyway who have the access to put this information out and then what happened actually is i, I didn't even consider it a thing and then while i was studying at university so i was at the university of bath i did a business degree there a whole other <laughs> regret and story <laughs> I started writing for the university magazine and there was a one year period where I did a kind of study abroad at the University of Austin in Texas. Okay. And this is the days before social media and I would like email my friends kind of all about my adventures. And these this weird thing would happen where I would start to get email replies from people who were not on my email list. So what was happening was that these emails were being forwarded to other people going, oh my God, check out the story, or it's so funny, or, you know, it's so whatever. And that's kind of when I caught on to the idea that, you know, maybe there was something there. I've got to remember, I was studying, so I was studying, so this business degree that I was studying, this is one why, of the, Why did you do a business yes, well, degree? I, it's quite, I know, quite, because it never occurred to me that I could study something that I was passionate about. Yeah. Like, had I had the choice, I would have done... So I, for my A-levels, I actually did French and drama or theater studies okay. and business. Makes the sense. business and the business, I was just checking off the third thing. French, I, I don't know. I was, I, I, yeah. But I, mean, I like, really don't know. Why the fuck do we make these decisions when we're younger? And theater studies was actually the one that I loved. Or like English literature and all of that sense. stuff. It's like artists for example who never studied art because like 
Why would you what, do that? You know what I mean? And I would have, and, and also, so my, you know, my, yeah. my parents, my dad was like, you, stu- you study business because then whatever happens and whatever you do in life, you can be a leader. My dad's very aggressive about like women, especially being independent and being leaders and being, okay. so this is just like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your personality <laughs> is. He won't like, he won't make you into that person, Balafia. And he does it with my daughter now. And it's, it's quite, it's alarming to watch it happen again. But so I was in this, this is the type of the business course where it's very, it's like the stuff that you see in TV where everyone is like, but this is also, you know, this is a good it's a good 22 years ago. Oh. <laughs> so these so it's all like, you know, the city and stock market right. and investment banks and management consultancies mm. and it's the heyday of this shit and it's super super sexy and all of these kids in my course are getting you know, golden handshakes into the city. They're getting jobs at like, back then it's called Arthur Anderson Consulting and the Big Five and Goldman Sachs. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what the hell is happening. I don't understand <laughs> anything. I'm not interested in any of this. No one's giving me, no one, no one is giving me a job. Were you applying or you were just I'm kind applying, of like, but okay. also I'm showing up to interviews in like Spice Girl Buffalo boots and like oh. purple streaks in my hair. So I'm not, oh. I'm like, I'm like, you didn't dress the part. I'm like obviously self-sabotaging, right? Because I don't want to end up at this <laughs> office desk in the city, right? And my mom was like, Amy, you're a writer. Amy, you're a writer. I'm like, there's no such thing. It's not, yeah. it's not a thing. Totally coincidentally, what had happened was a year before, or at some point in my university, I, w- I had ended up in Egypt for the summer. Mm-hmm. I'd never lived in Egypt. So born oh, in England. Wow. Born in England. Grew up in England. Graduated from England. Egypt, Yadubek was like a couple of weeks here and there every few years. Like it wasn't even like a regular occurrence yeah, in like, my life. Yeah, like, I mean, like I grew up in Jeddah. It's the same for me. But like, was there culture shock when you got here or not really? <laughs> I, I, I came into a very unique situation when I came to Egypt. So when I was there for that summer, my cousin had showed me a publication called Enigma. And this was like year one of Enigma, like year zero Enigma. And it had... Sting on the cover because he was coming to perform in Egypt. Oh my God. Now you've got to remember my experiences growing up with Egypt was like bit theta, right? My grandmother's house. Yeah. Right? This, this, I open up this magazine and it's like a whole world. I'm like, oh, this is Egypt. Do you yeah. know what I mean? There's like fashion designers and, and, and musicians and cool, sexy people and parties. I'm like, what's going on? Where is this Egypt? Yeah. And it, so I'm not getting any jobs. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I email the email in the, in the mag, like I find it and I email the email from England and I'm like, I, uh, I want a job. Okay. <laughs> like, no one replies. I email again. No one replies. I call the office in Cairo. No one replies. I've become manic about this, right? <laughs> and then eventually someone replies and they invite me to a meeting in London with the owner and the editor-in-chief, who was, of course, Yasmin Chaheta. Yes. And she's just like, very glad. This is like, this is glamorous. Like, I've never seen like a glamorous Egyptian woman like this. And she's I like, it. it's like a whole other world for me. Right. So we're in the, the office, you think my office back, back then in London was in just off Piccadilly Circus. Uh. Literally for 20 minutes, I was faxing over writing samples oh, from like wow. my student publications, from everything. So like, they already think I'm like some crazy bitch. I have no <laughs> idea why they agreed to meet me just because they want to get rid of me now because I'm manic. I'm like, I'll do anything. I'll do any job. And she was like, okay, I'll, you, she offers me the job of a staff writer. I remember at the time it was for 2000 Egyptian pounds. Nice. I, I didn't even think about what the exchange rate was. <laughs> I didn't realize that it was like literally like five sterling. Nice. But I was like, oh my God, 2000 pounds. 
<laughs> You're paying me 2,000 pounds to write? <laughs> and I got on a flight and I came to Egypt. So that's how my formal, wow. my real writing you moved career here for I this gig. Here. Okay. On the condition that I also did my master's. That was my dad's condition. So I okay. also started my master's in mass comm at the AUC, which is kind of a back, like a, a wrong way around move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't do the magister, but I did the other way around. And then you came here. And so you started living and writing in Egypt. And, and that's how I started my writing career. That's always genuinely, genuinely been storytelling has always been my real. That's my passion. That's that's why I, think, I do what I do. I think that's incredible how you ended up in Cairo, though. That's wild. And it was kind of like in the most, I mean, I think what made most sense would have been for you to like stay in London work in London do that whole thing right. and you ended up here and earn wow. so much more money than <laughs> literally <laughs> um oh well but like so is this how um your book came about the trials and tribulations yes. of being a good Egyptian girl of being a good Egyptian girl what so, does that mean so it was it was very ironic it was an ironic title like this you know this idea of, of that you're always pressured to be a good girl especially if you're an Arab girl yeah And so the book actually started off as a column on the back page of Enigma after I'd been there wow. for years and I became the managing editor. Okay. I sold them on the idea of me having this column. And I would write every month about kind of my adventures, you know, as a, as a young, single... At the time, you didn't have the term third culture kid, but no. that's what I was. Um, you just didn't have a phrase for it. So this young, single women, woman, third culture woman <laughs> in Egypt. And you brought kind of like this perspective of for the first time questioning like why do I have to be so and so and dress so and so and act in that way and there's just like a whole list of things that yeah. you know you're expected to do as a good Egyptian girl obviously. So there was there was a lot of things that I was it was in terms of you know you asked earlier about the culture shock and I always say this the culture shock was the opposite of what you'd expect right yeah. because I obviously came and I'm, I'm very aware that I am very fortunate that I came into a very privileged situation in Egypt because between Enigma and studying for my master's at the AUC. That's not Egypt. That's some, you know, <laughs> that's the bubble. Yeah, the Wonderland bubble, bubble right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I speak to more and more people in a similar situation, I, it's something in common that we have. I think when you are an Egyptian or an Arab or a Muslim who is brought up in the West, your parents hold on in a way to their culture and their traditions and their usul mm. actually in a in a much fiercer way than they do if you're being brought up in your own country. So I was brought up very much. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not conservative in an other, you know what I mean? Like, obviously it's a very, it's a liberal family, obviously, very liberal comparatively. But I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? Like there's no the sex, yeah, no yeah. sex, no drugs, no alcohol, no rock and roll, no fucking fun. <laughs> and I come to Egypt. No fun. No fun. <laughs> And I come to Egypt, you know, my friends are out clubbing at 18, which was great. I sat, I was at home studying and I'm, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad. I'm But you glad didn't expect did that. that, like you didn't expect the I club I come here scene. and it's the opposite, right? Yeah. I come here and I'm like, wait a second. I was told we don't do this. <laughs> why is everyone running, why is everyone running around half it's naked like getting lifting, drunk partying, right? Yeah, like lifting the hood and finding out <gasps> that there's like a whole. So to me, like yeah. to me. Ironically, it was a kind of reverse culture shock, especially because my knowledge of Egypt has been very protected in a kind of familial. I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and at the same time, also, you've got to remember that. And this was the other thing that I was negotiating, which I talked a lot about in the column and in the book, was you had this thing, you know, it, in England, if you come from a privileged background mm. or if you go to very good private schools or if you come from a certain socioeconomic class, the British way is to be very discreet Right. And to be very humble uh, from everything. Do you know what I mean? From the way that you communicate, from the way that you share your stories yeah. of yourself, from the way that you dress. 
And to me, this it was this, and, and that was the world that I came from. And then suddenly I find myself in, 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 in kind of the reflective world in Cairo. So other than the fact that I didn't even know this existed, part of, of these stories was kind of taking a very satirical look at the ostentatiousness of it and the extravagance of it. And, the, and to me, it was just an endless, wonderful, deep source of humor and fun, but always while making fun of myself as well. Because you were part of it and then eventually you became the Egyptian right. girl, right? Like... At what point did you transition from being the third culture kid to feeling like, well, this is a question, I guess, that maybe, I don't know. Do you maybe think you're you still ever figuring. Do? do you ever? Do you think you ever transitioned? Do you ever feel at home? You know what? Honestly, my answer is no, but like in the best way. <laughs> I don't know how it makes sense, but like my answer is no. Um, after thinking about it a lot, like the whole fit in situation. But did you ever feel like, oh, cool, now I fit in? No, till today. Yeah. Like till today. And actually, I think with age, The, the less fucks you give, so the more you'd start to not fit in. And yeah. I started to realize, like, I come, I come across as more fucking unhinged as the years go on, when actually I'm getting less and less unhinged in I'm, my mind, but I just don't give a shit anymore what anyone fucking thinks. Ironically, that writing and that column and those books were really a way for me to negotiate with myself how much I cared about not fitting in, yeah. which was the opposite of the image that I was portraying. And it was kind of me trying to figure things out for myself. It's kind of your superpower. If you were not this different, if you didn't have this perspective, you would not have written this column. You would have just been like oh, part 100%. of it. You had to be, I had to be an outsider to yeah. be able to, to get those stories. And it was incredible. The reaction was incredible. I never imagined it. And that's how it became a book. Just the wow. traction it started getting and the feedback that I would get from inside of Egypt, from outside of and Egypt. And it's still on Amazon, is it not? Like, I found it. I think you did? No way. <laughs> I, I looked mean, at I it today. I'm like, hmm, this is, it's actually incredible. But it was like a moment. It was a moment and like the LA Times reviewed it and the Washington yeah. Post reviewed it. And it was like a whole thing. And then there was a thing where I was like, it was the sex in the city of the Middle East. After that, did you feel like, oh, okay, so now I'm a writer? Yeah, I mean, I would say it like I was more willing to kind of own yeah. the word at that point, but, but like still, it's still like until today, that is in like Belil at night when I'm alone, that is what I truly consider myself. Everything else, uh, all of this stuff with Mo4 and the media and and and, and, and the, all of it, uh-huh. I don't even know how the fuck that happened. Yeah. Right? I mean, we'll get into it, but I think it's so incredible that you had to go through all of this and to the point where you published to call yourself a writer and then nowadays you can just slap that on your Instagram thingy and you're a writer. You know what I mean? Having, I don't know, written a bio or some two lines. Okay, so let's talk about MO4. Sure. This, yeah, any mammoth, let's call it a media company. It's pretty much anyone who lands in Egypt. It's their source. It's of information, pop culture, whatever it is, whatever you need, you find it there. So what's the craziest part of building this with your siblings? Because I know that it's MO4s and it's the four of you, it is. right? It's the four of us. It's me and my three younger brothers. It's been, the whole thing has been very, very crazy, honestly. It's much better now. It's much more settled and institutionalized yeah. now. But in those early days, it was very tense. People who were there in the early days, Yanni, I'm, I'm, I live in fear that someone is going to <laughs> release what happened. Like there were like laptops being thrown across the room at yeah. each other, like me and my siblings, obviously not other people. And they were like, I mean, it would just get crazy vicious between us. But it was part of the process of figuring out the power structure, right, and our roles, and and who was going to do what, and how this was going to work out. And it took many many years actually many years to kind of settle into understanding 
what it is that we were doing and, and how, I mean, we knew we had a vision, yeah. but kind of understanding what that meant on a practical day-to-day level. And when you started, were there any other media companies kind of doing what you did, coverage at that scale? So there were, I mean, certainly there were a lot of the digital publications. I mean, there aren't that many yeah, big ones no, in Egypt right now, but no. it was kind of the same ones that were there back then. I guess the benefit that we had was that I came from a media background and I came from a writing background and I also came from a traditional print background, which meant that I was much more rigorous than digital requires. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, Do you yeah. know what I mean? I had those, you know, I was like, AP rules and editing processes and after it's edited, it needs to be copy edited and then yeah. it needs to be fact checked and then it needs to, you know, like no one, who the fuck does that on digital? But I was just like obsessed with these things. But I think the craziest edge is that you were never print. Like that's the thing, like if I'm correct, yes, if I'm wrong. Yes, we never were. But like you, you went into like the social media, yes. online, website, whatever. Right. And we I think everyone else digital. transitioned there, yeah. but you started there. Yeah. We were were born of social and we were born of digital and that definitely gave us our edge. Definitely. And also we were truly, I mean, especially from my perspective, I didn't start the media as a business. Okay. You know what I mean? And you always hear this all the time. I think if you started with the objective of making money, it never turns out the way that you expect. True. I really wanted to tell these stories and it was a, it was a carry on from from what I had wanted to do before Enigma and then what I had Mm. wanted because I, because of being a third culture kid, in a world before social media and having no one that I could look to who could reflect what was possible for me as a young Egyptian woman, right? You didn't have any role models on television or radio or No, I mean, other than like TV hosts, but they weren't even that prominent especially or anything. Especially Lauber you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I wanted to be able to tell those stories about these incredible talents and incredible movements and incredible places that were really shaping a new era for the region and I started doing that in Enigma and this was really an opportunity but Enigma was obviously a very specific type of lifestyle publication for sure so this was really an opportunity for us to do it on a much bigger scale and that was the basis on which Cairo scene was born and Cairo scene at the beginning was very controversial yeah it was a different it, it was a different space there were different restrictions. <laughs> and so we had a lot indeed. more freedom, indeed. So yeah. we had a lot more freedom and we ran with those yeah. freedoms. I mean, I remember like when I first moved here in 2012, Cairo scene was kind of the place where you would go to figure everything out. Like I'm someone who didn't live in Cairo, don't know anything. Okay, so who are the people doing the things that I need to know about? Where mm. do I need to go? Blah, blah, blah. And it remains that to this day, but I think, and we'll discuss branching out further later, but even Cairo Zoom, like you would spot people there and it's like prominent figures and like interesting characters and whatnot. And it's it's so weird that that was not there before that. And then, so what were people looking at? I'm not sure. At Enigma. At Enigma. <laughs> at Enigma. And like, if you could get a print copy and obviously men, not really, you know yes, what I mean? Okay. So you kind of tapped into a completely different yes. audience. So how did moving to downtown change your business, if at all? Like, was Balad, this whole new chapter that you went into? So I always loved, so our first office was actually in Kurnishi Giza. Okay. It was actually, our first office was my apartment. Oh, wow. Which we changed into an office, which I, I was I was pregnant with my first daughter and my husband was in London and overnight I changed into an office and moved in with my parents and didn't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and it just got wow. worse for him from them and ever since moved forward to priority. I know. Fun, fun wife. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then that's why, like, whenever he talks to people, he's like, our business. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? like, 
I took most of the shit for this to happen. You did this while pregnant? I like, did this while I was pregnant. I was, we started, so obviously oh. there was parts of Mo4 that started. It wasn't called Mo4. There was a okay. ticketing website which Adam had started, and he actually started Zoom before I joined. Okay. And then we made it into Mo4, and it's when that happened, and I had left Enigma, that we changed my apartment into an office. And then we ended up, and it was a, it was a residential building. It was a beautiful <laughs> residential building because it was my home. And then, and then we... And then we had to get the office next door as we expanded and very quickly. The misfits, like they yeah. kept on getting. So it was in the office next door and then the office below us and the office above us. And they were pissed in that building. I'm sure. Right. Because it's this very like old school residential, like Muhtaram Awi Umar. And like Egypt and like who's and coming up Egypt, and down. And suddenly there's all these like crazy millennials, like now it's Gen Z at the time was millennials, like this crazy <laughs> tattooed, pierced, yeah, you know, like crazy colored hair millennials hair. coming yeah. in and out at like all hours of the day and night and they oh. wanted us out yeah your neighbors <laughs> i'm sure your neighbors like loved oh my you. god they hate like it was just a, it was a disaster and so they really so wanted good. us out and actually i had always loved downtown yeah i, I was i always had a tremendous passion for downtown we actually launched the downtown cairo account no I remember, knew. I think it was at one of the summits, like narrative summit or something, when you told the story of downtown yeah. Cairo, the account. I'm like, wow, that yeah. is sick. That was one of the coolest things we did. Until Ever. today, it's one of my favorite case yeah, studies. Yeah. Amazing. I have a real affinity for downtown. I feel like the suburbs frighten me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they make me feel tremendously anxious. Do you know what I mean? Like compound living makes me feel like I'm in a Sims computer game, like the world's about to end. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm yeah. Like, Good morning. And then like, I feel like I'm fucking turning into like this Deptford housewife. And so, and this, so I've always been very like, I love the city. Yes, moving into downtown was a game changer for us, but it, it wasn't just about moving into downtown. It was specifically moving into the space that we moved into yeah. and taking the library of the old uh, AUC. It was, it, it told the market you know, for a long time, we were considered not even the underdog. We were the underdog. We used to call ourselves the underdog, but we actually were just considered a bunch of kids. Right. Yeah. And no one really understood what we were doing or even how or why we were getting this business. And because we were so unaware of the extent to which we were disrupting the market, we were unaware of how vicious, how viscerally vicious mm-hmm. the industry around us was being. And so when shit would go wrong, we would think like, Bad luck, or we fucked something up. It was only in hindsight that we realized, my God, they were literally playing against us. We were completely oblivious to all mm. of this. Moving into that space made a, which at the time we could not afford, <laughs> oh my God. made a huge statement to the industry of we're a real, we're we're a real media company and we're a real right. agency, and and yes, we will go into pitches and we will fucking win those fucking pitches because. <laughs> We're the future. Yeah. And like the thing is, actually, that's so interesting you say that because my next question was about credibility and like the idea of like, when did you feel like people were like, oh, shit, like this is real. And I feel like here culturally takes us a little bit more to kind of get to the point where you're like, oh, this is competition or this is groundbreaking or it's next level or they're thinking three steps ahead. So when was the moment that you felt like, oh, they're really taking us so, so early? Seriously? I mean, definitely one of the big moves for us. One of the big plays was us when we won the pitches for the entire Coke portfolio, because then you couldn't. Yeah. And that had never happened before. Do you know what I mean? A brand mm-hmm. like Coke has always just worked with global agencies Huge. and global partners who have mm. local offices. So that was a that was a moment for the industry to go, wait a second, what are what mm. are they what's happening here? Moving into the office was another point that kind of changed it around. Yeah. But I think maybe one of the things I think 
and this is something that I'm very proud of until today, is no matter how big we've grown or alhamdulillah, how much of an impact we've made, internally as a culture, we've never taken ourselves too seriously. Yeah. And I think that's important. I, you know, I've always, on a personal level, I've always been very suspicious of people who, t- people even who take oh. themselves very seriously. I you think never acted a- like the company or you never shifted your culture in the sense of like, all right, so now guys, we're going to suit up and, and like look the part or whatever. No, like, Khalis, you, know? you know what I mean? And, yeah. until, and I think it's nice to continue. We continue to have that spirit and that culture of a little bit of being the underdog because I think it keeps you hungry and I think For it sure. keeps you... I think it keeps you motivated to keep trying to do better and to be better. And yeah. there's so much we still want to do. So much. So how does it feel being a woman in the storytelling industry today? And what's the biggest obstacle you faced? It's interesting. I've gone back and forth on this. I think about this a lot. And if you had asked me in my 20s, I would have said, I don't think it's about storytelling industry or not storytelling industry. I think actually this industry in Egypt, I think it's interesting that a number of female leaders that there are. Yeah, actually. I don't know if it's a thing around the world, but I certainly know in Egypt, if you look at a lot of the, whether it's independent agencies or um, local offices of global agencies, a lot of them are led by incredibly talented women and set up by incredibly talented women and publications. It's the same thing. So I think there's actually a great representation for women in this particular space yeah. in Egypt. If you'd ask me in my 20s, is, is it being a woman is is a part of this story? I would go, no, no, I don't think about that stuff. No one cares about that stuff. If you put it in your head, then it becomes a thing. And I think there was an element of naivety. I mean, which maybe, is one narrative that I sometimes like to tell myself, but right, what's the truth? Right. right? Like, and I think there was an yeah. element, I think though there's an element of privileged <laughs> naivety okay. in, in, in thinking like that. Exactly like you're saying, I would tell that to myself a lot. I, th- I felt it, I felt it was a more empowering narrative yeah. than to put yourself in a position of the victim. Like it doesn't matter. Like what are you talking about? Right. It's not the elephant in the room. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then what I realized is I think there had been, and maybe this was positive because I think what happened is there were situations mm. where, and not from a storytelling perspective, but maybe you know more from a business perspective where I didn't have the voice that I should have, or I wasn't taking it as seriously as I should have, or I didn't get the opportunities that I should have. Ironically, I would think I fucked that up. I'm going to push better and harder next time. And maybe that worked to my benefit because it made yeah. me more and more aggressive in going after the things. But now uh, with age, and time and maybe experience, I've become acutely aware of the situations where the patriarchy is very much at play in the room. Very you know real. what I mean? And it's very real and it's done in very subtle ways. And because mm. it's subtle, it's very insidious, mm. right? And and the way in which, especially as the rooms got more... Important. Um, more, more quote unquote important. important. Yes. <laughs> That's when it became a real positive that I was so aware of it mm. because I, you know, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Yeah. Like I yeah. learned to do that. I learned to go. I understand that right now what's happening is, is them trying to gaslight me or undermine me. And I'm going to have to be very aware irrespective of how fast my heart is beating and I want to pee my fucking pants and cry. I'm going to have to make my voice louder, you know, keep my feet grounded and just keep going in the direction and the things that I want to do. And this industry does have a lot of female leaders. I think if you're aware of it, you can put together the tools or the correct way to speak on your own behalf in that way. Yes. Like if you have that in the back of your mind, then it doesn't phase you. If you don't, then you're sitting there like, oh my God. Yes. Uh, Did I just say something stupid? Yeah. Or is this idea stupid? (laughs) Or am I not worthy of making this demand? Exactly. So what's the best part of your job? 
it's like a PR cell when I say this, but I genuinely, genuinely, it gives me so much joy to tell these stories. It gives me so much joy to spotlight all of these talents uh, and people and to tell the stories that I wish I was told when I was growing up. And so how do you keep moving forward on the hard days when things like hit the fan? And I'm, See, I'm scared of talking about this. <laughs> this topic scares me more than like <laughs> other big, like, like I'm more scared of talking about this than I am about politics just because of the where like where people's headspace is at right now. Yeah. And I, I don't know, blame it on, on my age, blame it on my generation. But and it's and you, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And the reality is I come from a generation where success, hmm. where we define success by and you keep the fuck going. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so whether that's right or wrong, <laughs> and I understand the discourse around that, that's just what's inbred in me. Right. right, right. You've got to, you, and God knows we've been not pushed down. We've been kicked down and stamped again and again and again and again. And we wouldn't been, we would not have been here if we didn't have me and my brothers inherent within us, the idea of I'm going to get up yeah. and I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. And I don't need to. And I think people, I think sometimes you think I need to have all the answers or I need to feel a certain way mm. today to do something. I think that's such a good point. Like I need to feel a certain way is a trap because you will not feel that right? way. Right. You like, just, so you just keep moving you just forward. Keep moving. And there, and I know we were both up, We were very, very much, and this was something that was very right. drilled in us when we were brought up. Talaman, sahiti sob, wa rabbina midiki saha. There's nothing in life you can't go up against. Yeah, that's it. You've just been given the biggest gift: your 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 health, right? You know, clean yourself up and do it. And there are days. There are days, and I and I and I play a, a game with myself where where if it's a day where I just I really. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, mm. whatever the reason, don't have it in me. I'll be like, that's fine. Today is my sit under the duvet and eat macaroni bechamel and watch, you know, <laughs> 29 episodes of The Good Doctor. I've just finished season 90 million or whatever oh season God. there is. That's nothing left. <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to feel sorry for myself today and then tomorrow morning, however I feel. You have to go. Gonna, you've got, it's resilience and grit. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know why those have become, I don't, I don't think they're bad words. I oh don't my God, I was going to, I was going to tell you something. I, I remember when I went to downtown office first time and I saw the word grit in neon and it's one of my favorite words and not a lot of people use this word. It's very interesting, but it's fantastic. Like there's a book written about it. It's I called know, grit. grit. And I one know. of my mentors gave it to me. He's like, read this. And I'm like, okay. And I read it and it's just kind of definition of a lot. It's, it's the term that people use. It's not intelligence. It's not like, oh my God, motivation, blah, 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 whatever. No, it's grit that will get you through. It's so true. Like you were saying earlier when yeah, I was I like, know. oh, how did you, you know, get the X or Y podcast? And you were like, because I just, I just kept pushing I for it. Because <laughs> I just kept nagging. But that's, it's yeah. the same thing, right? Yeah, it's about yeah. hanging on to something and refusing to let go whatever gets thrown in your way. And yeah. I just... You can't give up. I don't know. I think we, we it's important not to, it's, you've got, <laughs> there's got to, you've got to push yourself. Yeah. You can't, ex or don't expect the thing. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am not saying, I am not here to define your success. Mm -hmm. So I will never be a person to judge 
what you want. You know what I mean? You know, I from my life, I want to be able to sit on a beach and wake up in the morning and freelance yeah. and surf in the afternoon and enjoy my time in the friends. And that's what brings me joy. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm a little fucking jealous of you. Good job. Good for you. That's not my issue. What drives me to distraction is the person who wants X, right? But isn't doesn't understand that getting to X is a fucker of a journey. But I mean, like, I want to also talk about Amy Moefi, like the influencer versus Amy Moefi, the CEO. Like, are they two different? <laughs> are they the two different I people? I didn't know there was Amy Moefi, the influencer. <laughs> like, no, but you're making me anxious. You're so facetious about it. And it's so good because I think that you have a lot of influence. I just want to know, is that something that you actually consider? Or you're just kind of giving the little... No, that golden my, nuggets. So that's my outlet. So it's only yeah. just Instagram. Those 2,200 characters that you're allowed on Instagram has just replaced my career as a writer, basically. Yeah. And I do it because it's the, it really makes it, it's the thing that makes me the happiest to to put my thoughts down on paper. Mm. I wish I did it more. I promise myself that I'll do it daily, but then the, the CEO life takes over. The CEO, yeah. That's what I love. So yeah, you recently launched an app which I downloaded. Yeah. Wow. Which is sick. And then also seen home and there's other things coming up. And I feel like some people are of the school of like focus on one thing and like hammer it down until it's perfect, blah, blah, blah. And then others are like, no, do it all and see what works and see what doesn't. And if something drops, cool. So like which which side of the the kind of coin are you on? So I don't really think that we're doing anything different. Yeah. I think these are all natural progressions. Seen now, the, the media app was something that we had been discussing for a very, very long time, actually. Yeah. And it's an opportunity to have all of the content that we're creating across our media portfolio kind of funnel into one very accessible platform. Yeah, um, that's really good. It's really usable, like user friendly. It's super clean. I loved it, actually. It's really? Very- I'm so happy. Yeah, yeah I got I'm it. I'm so happy. <laughs> that's, yeah, I'm really, really happy. And I think obviously that's the way that media is. It just made sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes sense. And I think people, I just think it's the way that media is moving. And so we wanted to be in that space as quickly as we could. Yeah. So I, I think it's a natural progression. I think whether it's scene home or scene traveler, and we're going to launch scene styled soon Ooh. for fashion. Um, and then we need to talk. Fashion. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think it's just, it's a continuing. So with with media, right? You have a power of something like Kairosin or Al-Fasla on the Arabic, yeah. where it is a general lifestyle and news publication, and you have a very large cross section of an audience. And from a just talk to talk from a business perspective and a storytelling perspective momentarily, that gives you the opportunity to obviously monetize across a big audience because on media, what you're selling is essentially space, right? You're selling eyeballs. Yes. Creating then publications with niche audiences gives you the opportunity to upsell on that sale, right? Mm. So someone comes to you, let's say it's a company that is in the design space, right? Yeah. So, or, or the real estate space. They pay X and they're on Kairosine in terms of our native advertising and they're reaching an audience of millions on Kairosine. And that's great because that gives them awareness and exposure. But then being able to upsell to a niche audience that can probably generate real key custom for sure right and drive real world traffic for them well that's another great opportunity from a media perspective so there's one element of that where it just gives us the opportunity to focus on even more stories in these different types yeah. of spaces you know if you look at something like scene noise on cairo scene i'd never be able to tell the stories of, of a lot of these 
wonderful, amazing musical talents. Yeah. Because Cairo is an audience which is and you know, the rapper from Mishad Fani. And they're, not, really they're not interested in that sense. Exactly. Let's say I don't want to read Cairo scene. I yes. want to know where the home design interior, whatever exactly. is. You know what I mean? So exactly. it's just so, so much more fun. efficient. It's a fun play. I just want to ask what's next for Amy? <laughs> if you want to disclose. I'm just going like, <laughs> to stop showing up to the office and run away to an island somewhere okay. and like write, write, write my book. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> That's the real fucking dream. I don't know what the rest of this is. We have big, I mean, for Amy, yeah, for Amy. Yeah. I'm just kind of, I'm just really, I'm, 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 I'm kind of really just enjoying this phase of my life where I'm more self-aware than I've ever been. More attuned to what I want and what I don't want. And understanding more how to, ironically, given what you were talking about before, how to balance because you're a mom too and that's also something yes, <laughs> important <yes> obviously I, <laughs> I feel Indeed like I, am. Forget, I just forgot Shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. i hope i hope we're lucky enough and, and 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 fortunate enough to be able to continue on this journey because it's been really really tough but it's also been a tremendous privilege and we're very very fortunate to have been able to do what we do we have a lot more planned and continue telling these amazing stories yeah. because it's been substantial for Cairo. It's been amazing. That means so, a lot to me. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank fun. you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. Give us a review. Shoot me a text or direct message us on Instagram at Radical Contemporary, where we'd love to hear your feedback and the topics you'd like to listen to. Also, you can check out our website, www.radicalcontemporary.com, where all of our content is available. Finally, we'll be hosting a new guest every week. So stay tuned.